Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. What a beautiful day the Lord has made for us. We uh, have the privilege, I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege to welcome you in the name of the Lord, whether you're a regular attender or you're visiting or a guest with us, we want to welcome you and trust you will feel God's presence and know you have been in his presence and know that his word has been lifted up and also that you have been among his people. I'm going to ask you to turn to that book that Kelly read for us, the first chapter, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Certainly one of the more interesting books as far as uh, many people considering it a bit unique and bizarre even, macabre, been all kinds of uh, adjectives used to describe Ecclesiastes. And this morning we are going to begin a 10-week series in this book to look at what it says about finding life's purpose. I don't know how you could really identify something more important than trying to nail that down. What is the purpose of life? And as things continue to spiral out of control around the world, in our own country, it is certainly an issue that is forefront. So Ecclesiastes, as I do that, I want to, we've uh, highlighted a couple different commentaries, and I'll be doing that through the series. These are in our library. Pastor Tim does a great job keeping our library well stocked. Actually, I stepped into his office this morning and borrowed this one. I'm not going to steal it. It says Tim Bruns, but I promise to give it back. So I'm, this accountability right here, Tim, that I'm not going to. But anyways, I was just grabbing on the way out the door. Uh, this is one of them, Ecclesiastes, the Reformed Expository Commentary. This is actually the one we're giving to all of our small group leaders, correct? Yeah, for our, our, our community groups uh, by Douglas Sean O'Connell. And uh, this is just one of those. I'll be highlighting more of these. This one, a couple copies are in our library. There's some other ones that we also be highlighting, but they're also in our library, just to make you aware, so that as you study this, you have some extra tools. God has given the gift of teacher to the church, and one of that means not only just somebody live, but also in print. That is also a gift, the teaching through either live or through print. And so we want to encourage you to be using commentaries, digging into God's Word. If you're in one of our community groups, I hope you are, they're sermon-based, and they're going through questions based off the sermon, not just regurgitation, but actually going beyond and digging into the text together. Let me just lead us briefly in prayer as we do this. I know I have in front of me those who know Christ and those who do not, and I want to pray, and God would open our eyes and feed us and stir us and teach us from this unique passage of Scripture. Father, holy is your name this morning, as we have been singing and praying and even reciting the catechism. We thank you for leaving us a book of words that are true. We thank you for leaving us an inspired revelation from Psalm 119, verse 89, your word, Lord, is eternal. And it stands firm in the heavens. Father, we know there's not much firm in our culture. Things shifting constantly, changing. Bad news, worse news, confusing news. Father, we need a good word from heaven. We need to hear your voice from heaven. And we thank you throughout the ages, no matter what goes on, you have given us a divine inspiration 
in the 66 books of Holy Scripture. And as we turn to this book for the next 10 weeks, we ask that you would lead us, guide us, feed us, challenge us, stir us, create a thirst in us to know you in a deeper way. I pray for those here today who are born-again Christians that you would deepen their faith and their understanding of you, their desire to pass that on to their children and grandchildren and evangelize those around them with the good news. And for those here this morning, Father, who are confused, who do not know Christ and are not certain where they stand spiritually, that you would use this series to summon them to a Savior and that they would see and be captured by the beauty of a Savior who gave his life that they might gain eternal life. We thank you and we praise you for inspiring this particular book. Speak, O God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes, a book about finding life's purpose. What makes, one of the things that makes this book so unique, Ecclesiastes, is that it's a journal. It's a diary, so to speak, of an honest, disillusioned hedonist. You know what a hedonist is? Somebody who is a pleasure seeker for the sake purely of seeking pleasure. And the man who wrote this was a disillusioned hedonist, uh, someone who had a lot of resources, probably more resources than any of us would ever even dream of having, and who chased earthly pleasures, had anything he wanted at his fingertips, seeking the good life, wanting the good life, passionate about trying to find the good life, only to discover that the more money he spent... The more wine he drank, the more women he chased, the more stuff he possessed, the more depressed he got. And it just had this reciprocal downward relationship. In other words, Ecclesiastes is going to teach us that the good life cannot be found in earthly things. Now, one of the things you're also going to hear in this series is the Bible is not anti-pleasure. And Ecclesiastes is not anti-pleasure. It's about putting pleasure in the right place. And understanding what it is that brings real pleasure and what it's not. God is, God is the giver of good pleasures. But it's when we put those first, as Solomon was doing here, that we realize it not only doesn't satisfy, it starts working against satisfaction. And so the point of Ecclesiastes, finally, as we get to the end, we'll see today, because today is kind of an overview sermon. The whole point of this is learning to fear and obey God. And in that sense, Ecclesiastes points straight to the gospel of Jesus, straight to his cross, because he is the wisdom of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin our study of this book, and we're going to look at a couple things. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? That's an interesting question. Secondly, why study this crazy book? A lot of people either seem unusually attracted to it because it's, it seems cynical and, and dark at times and skeptical, so some, some are attracted, others are repelled by it, others just don't know quite what to do with it. So why, why study this? And then lastly, the key lessons coming out of this book. That's today's sermon. Next week, we will then dive into chapters 1 and 2 specifically. So first of all, who wrote Ecclesiastes? I don't know if you have a study Bible in front of you or not. I use the NIV, the uh, New International Version, uh, as a translation. Uh, then the New International as a study Bible. Also, you might have the ESV study Bible. It seems like there's almost a, like a new study Bible that comes out almost every week. 
But some of our study Bibles are very good. One of the best is the English Standard Version, the ESV Study Bible. But if you have notes there, you may notice some different uh, comments about who wrote this. The traditional title that we have in English, Ecclesiastes, doesn't come from the Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Ecclesiastes was written in Hebrew originally. And Ecclesiastes is not a Hebrew title of the book. You say, well, then where's the word Ecclesiastes come from? Well, it comes from the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Church used for centuries. It also comes from the Septuagint. You say, what's that? It sounds like a disease. It's not. It's not the latest you know, uh, variant of, of uh, COVID. Uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. As Hebrew is fading out in the ancient world around 200 BC or so, Jews realized they needed to update and translate the Old Testament into language that was being used widely after Alexander the Great. And so in Alexandria, Egypt, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that became the Septuagint. That, by the way, was the Bible Jesus generally quoted from, was the Septuagint, not the Hebrew text usually. In the Hebrew text, the name of this book comes from who is speaking. So it's just, it's a Hebrew word, quelleth. That's what it means. That's all it is. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, it depends on your translation. It could either be translated teacher or probably even better preacher. I think preacher is a better translation. So the word Ecclesiastes is literally the one who is speaking or preaching to the ecclesia, to the congregation. That's what the word ecclesia means. It's a word used in the New Testament. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not stand against the church, uh, or against him, the word ecclesia, which Matthew uses in his gospel, means the congregation. This is an ecclesia. So it is the preacher speaking to the assembly. That is what this book means. That's why Ecclesiastes is used in the Latin and the Greek. Look at verse 1. NIV uses the word teacher. Again, I think preacher is a better translation of quelleth. The words of the teacher, son of David king in Jerusalem. So it obviously raises the question, why isn't it you know, you know, called the book of Solomon or something like that? It's not, he's not identified by name. So the question is, who is Quelleth? If you dive into commentaries, you will sift through all kinds of interesting uh, theories about who the author may or may not be, even from evangelical, more conservative commentaries. The belief prevailed all the way up through the 18th and 19th century and really, it was never doubted that Solomon was the author of the book. Uh, tradition tells us that Solomon wrote this as an older man, that he wrote Proverbs as a middle-aged man, and he wrote Song of Solomon as a young man. So the question is, did Solomon really write the book? And again, until the biblical skepticism was surging in European universities in the 18th, 19th century, no one really doubted Solomon is the author of the book because he's... The identification really doesn't fit anybody else. Solomon also fits the extravagant descriptions of wealth, pride, and intellectual pursuits in Ecclesiastes. So I don't have any really doubt that Solomon is the author. I've been my opinion pretty much for several decades, and I still hold to that. I think Solomon is clearly the author here. All right, let's go to the more important question. Why study this book, okay? Kids... Young people, teenagers, especially want your attention. Why dive into a book that seems so dark and pessimistic? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, let me just remind you, if you've not read it, I would encourage you to be reading this book. It's not real long. 
There's no reason you couldn't read this book once a week for the next 10 weeks. It's that good, and it's good to soak on Scripture, especially a shorter book like this. More and more will come out as you read. But many wonder, why would God put a book like this in the Bible? Same questions asked, by the way, about Song of Solomon, which is pretty uh, much of a, uh, an erotic love poem. And a lot of people have struggled over, why would God put something like that in the Bible? Well, the answer to that one is God invented sexual love for the confines of marriage, and he celebrates it. Ecclesiastes is put in the Bible to remind us that life does have a purpose, but it only comes in fearing and obeying God, not chasing the wrong things. And this is the diary of somebody, God-inspired, who chased the wrong things and then at the end realized where true purpose is found. So I'm going to give you just four reasons, I think, why studying this is such a valuable thing and why it's a good thing for us over the next 10 weeks. Okay, so number one, these are in no particular order. Number one, because Ecclesiastes reminds us what happens when we chase the wrong things in life. And all of us, let's just be honest, just us chickens here, Jesus is watching, so let's just be honest, all of us have done this. We've all at different times, some of us are doing it right now, as I'm talking with you, but we've all chased the wrong things. This is nothing about net worth, by the way. This is nothing about being wealthy or not wealthy. There are wealthy people who are very humble and generous, and there are poor people who are lovers of money and stingy. This is not a statement about net worth. This is about what happens in life when you begin to chase the foreign god of money or pleasure or other things along that line, earthly things. The writer of Ecclesiastes had more money and he had more pleasures, more wine than just about anybody you could find. And it was not enough. That's the point. In fact, indulging in pleasure, earthly pleasures, started to work against his pleasure. It's not just, and, and that's a biblical message that's so important to understand. It's not just that chasing money and chasing pleasure doesn't satisfy. It's that actually it begins to work against satisfaction, against joy, against finding purpose in life. Solomon was... As you read his book, he's the first existentialist before existentialism was cool. Before, you know, Albert Camus, before Jean-Paul Sartre, before Friedrich Nietzsche or Kierkegaard, before existentialism was even a thing, here's the first existentialist who cried out, all is meaningless. Turn over to chapter 2 for just a minute. We're going to be dipping into a couple of different passages because this is an overview sermon. Just for an example, look at verses 9 to 11. Here you come against, and the word here, meaningless or translated vanity, just a Hebrew word, it, it means either breath or vapor. That's what it means, basically like a puff of smoke that's gone. So chapter 2, verse 9, for example, in my heading in front of chapter 2, in my text, is pleasures are meaningless. Drop down to verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone else in Jerusalem. That also fits Solomon. Before me, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Some of you have done that. So a lot of us have tried it. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this is the reward for my toil. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, 
and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vanity or meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. A lot of you know of the rock group Queen and Freddie Mercury, made famous for a number of songs, but especially ones that sung in NFL football games a lot, We Will Rock You, especially if your team's winning. <laughs> Uh, died of AIDS in the early 1990s, tragic story. He said this before he died about, it wasn't about chasing the wrong things, but he was, and so his quote is very uh, pertinent. He said, what is there left for me to do in this life? Did I achieve all I'd set out my sights on? Am I a happy man or is this sinking sand? Was it worth it? Obviously, those are rhetorical questions, and for him, the answer was no. Now, I want to bring you to an interpretive key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. When you're, when you're doing Bible study, by the way, BTW, when you're, doing, when you're studying a book of the Bible or a chapter or a theme in the Bible, one of the things you want to do is make sure you understand the, the, kind of the interpretive key to unlock, especially a book of the Bible. And the key to unlock Ecclesiastes is a phrase that is found... <clears throat> Uh, almost 25 times in the book, under the sun, under the sun. And the key to remember is that this is a diary. In effect, it's a journal of a disappointed, a disappointed hedonist who went on a pleasure safari. He's a pleasure seeker. And the journal represents an under the sun perspective. So if you go back chapter one for just a minute and look at, for example, verses three and nine, you're going to see this phrase. You're going to see it in other places too. You'll see it in verse I think 14 too. But over 25 times in the book, this phrase keeps coming out. That's a, that's a key interpretive signal. It's a, it's a reminder. This is key to understanding the book. Verse 3, for example. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Or look at verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the the sun. In other words, Solomon attempted to find lasting satisfaction in life apart from God by pursuing things only under the sun, earthly things, and he ended up a miserable failure. And some of you could stand up here right now and say the same exact thing. You could testify and give a hearty amen to what he's saying. What becomes clear as you read the journal is that the more he chased earthly pleasures, the more disillusioned, the more depressed and the more despondent he became. And he's very clear about this in his journal, verses 8 and 9. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. That in itself is a whole sermon right there, verse 8. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. John D. Rockefeller famously was asked one time, how much do you need? How much money do you need? And a lot of you know his answer. Just what? A little bit more. Yeah. Why? Because if that's your goal, if that's your God, if that's the end game, it's never enough. Ever, ever, ever. In fact, it will start to work against you. And you will start to become miserable. People who love money, number one, never admit it. And number two, in become increasingly miserable and sometimes psychotic because they serve a false God and it starts just disintegrating. They, they just start disintegrating as they serve this false god. What becomes clear as you read Solomon's journal as he did this, he got more and more empty. You come down to verse 14. 
I have seen all things that are done under the sun. There's the phrase again. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And you don't have to look very far to find people who've done this, who've tried this, people you know personally or famous people. Uh, as I've preached on this before or done my own research, you just a couple examples among hundreds. But Patrick Swayze, before he died in 2009, had a very interesting quote. He said, I've had everything I've always dreamed of. I've had everything I've always dreamed of. But once I got there, I wondered why my life felt so empty. Chuck Colson, who was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, said the same thing. He said, the only difference between rich people and poor people is that rich people know that money doesn't buy happiness. <laughs> the poor people, he said, are still under the illusion that if they chase it, somehow it'll provide. So Patrick Swayze, I, you know, I've had everything I dreamed of. Why did it feel so empty? And then he went on to say, I'm not satisfied with what I've got, and I have nobody to complain to. Tragic quote. Tom Brady, not a big Patriots fan, but let's be honest, probably the greatest football player that's ever lived. Incredible. He did an interview with 60 Minutes a few years ago, and he expressed a sense of needing something more besides his mounting collection of Super Bowl rings. And he was asked straight out, well, then what's the answer? I mean, if having more and more Super Bowl rings isn't the answer, what is? And his answer was haunting. This is omni-talented, omni-competent quarterback. And he said, I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew what the answer was. And this is why Solomon's journal is so helpful. It's a record of a pleasure safari. That's a good way to phrase it. He went on a pleasure safari, had all resources he could ever want, tried everything he ever dreamt of, and the more he pursued, the more money he accumulated, the more stuff he piled up, the more pleasures he mounted, the more wine he drank, the more miserable he, begot, he became, and he just disintegrated. That's the first reason. That's the longest reason why I think Ecclesiastes is important to study and one of the reasons it was written to remind us not to chase the wrong things. Let me give you three others quickly. The second reason to study this book is because it's so honest about the troubles of life. If you've read the book, I hope you have, and if not, start reading it. It captures the humility and frustration of living in a broken world. And this is a broken world, right? I mean, we live in a broken world. Somebody once said, Ecclesiastes feels like it was written on a Monday morning. And that's kind of what it feels like as you read it. Herman Melville said that Ecclesiastes was the truest of all books because it, it's, it's honest. It's brutally honest about injustice and about suffering and about misery and about the apparent absurdity of life and just sometimes the drudgery of going through the same routine. If you turn over to chapter 9 for just a minute. got to admire how, just how honest uh, Solomon was as he wrote this thing. Chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. Come to our phrase here again. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, to the battle of the strong. In other words, things don't go like you typically assume. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, meaning their death. 
As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. In other words, virtually nothing turns out like you thought it would. All of us are testimonies to that. Things we hoped would happen, money we put a business into, or time we put a ministry into, or energy we put a relationship into, and it all turns out completely upside down and nothing like we had anticipated. And it goes on over and over again. That's exactly what he's saying, and this is a reminder of that. Just this week, front page story in USA Today talked about the rise in anxiety and depression right now, especially during COVID, but during our turbulent times. According to a new poll that they cited in that article, almost 9 in 10 registered voters believe there is a mental health crisis in America. And it was only focusing on our country, not other countries. But 90% of those registered voters who were polled, according to USA Today, believe that we are in the midst of a mounting mental health crisis. That in itself is a reason not only to turn to Scripture, but especially to turn to Ecclesiastes. Thirdly, because it asks, it asks the hard questions about life, and it doesn't give superficial answers. I'm a big one for asking hard questions. I hate superficial answers. I assume most of you do. don't want superficial an, uh, uh, answers. And I, and I don't appreciate when people you know, say, well, don't ask tough questions. Ask tough questions. One of my Hebrew professors in graduate school, I remember, who was trained both as a lawyer and had a PhD in classics, he said, don't, you know, he looked at us and he said, don't ever be afraid, ever be afraid to ask the tough questions and follow the evidence. Appreciated that. And Ecclesiastes asked the tough questions. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy at times? What's the point of it all? Does God really care? Is God in control? I mean, young and old, we all, kids, right? Young people, adults, we all care about these questions. What's the point of being good? Why is there so much suffering? Is life really worth living? What's going to happen? Is there an afterlife? These are, these are addressed straight on. Not all of them are given answers, but at least what we don't get is a whole bunch of superficial answers. And fourth reason to study this book is because it points us to God. Some people say, it does? yeah, and if you've read the whole book, you know, especially at the end, for all of its cynicism, pessimism, and skepticism and darkness, Ecclesiastes teaches many great truths about who God is and how to know Him. And it tells us at the end exactly why he wrote it, and why it's so important, and how to know God. In fact, in that sense, this is a book for skeptics. This is a book for cynics. This is a book for agnostics and even atheists if you're open to the evidence. Now, a lot of people aren't open to the evidence. G.K. Chesterton would say, a lot of people say, you know, when they say they're thinking, they're not really thinking. All they're doing is rearranging their prejudices. If you're open to the evidence and truly open, this is a great book. Because it asks the hard questions, doesn't give superficial answers, and points us to God. So four reasons why it's so valuable to study. Now, lastly, before we go to the Lord's Supper today, the lessons of Ecclesiastes. And this is going to serve as our summons. One of my favorite sayings is no summons, no sermon. That's the difference between a lecture, by the way, and a sermon. A lecture doesn't really have a summons to it, a kind of a, this is what you're called to do. Sermon does, or should. So this is going to serve as our summons today as we look at the, what, what is Ecclesiastes calling us to do? What are the lessons in Ecclesiastes? And here, I'm, again, I'm going high level, and I want to look at four different lessons Ecclesiastes is calling us to remember. Number one, 
Remember that the ability, and this is going to surprise you, to enjoy possessions is a gift from God. Again, Ecclesiastes is not anti-pleasure. It doesn't, the message of Ecclesiastes is not go home and throw away all your stuff and give away all your money. It may be to give away more of your money and be more generous with your possessions and quit looking to them for ultimate satisfaction and get rid of some of them and thin out. I hope some of us do do that. But the book itself is not a, a screed against possessions or against money per se. That's not the point. It's calling us to remember that the ability to even enjoy what we have, whatever our net worth, is a divine gift from God. Uh, Dr. Walter Kaiser, another one, another one of my Hebrew professors in grad school, wrote a short commentary years ago on Ecclesiastes, still in print. And he brings this out really well in that little commentary. That, the gift, that it is a divine gift to be able to enjoy your possessions, whatever they are. Whether they're a small amount, medium amount, or large amount. God gives the gift to be able to enjoy or he withholds the gift. In midway through Solomon's pleasure experiment, we learn that the ability to enjoy possessions only comes from God. Look at chapter 5 for a minute, verses 18 through 19. And again, if you're looking for a good short commentary, I would recommend Walter Kaiser's. K-A-I-S-C-R, you can still find it, it's in print. But he really brings this out well. I remember studying this uh, even as a, as a, in college, in seminary, and that was one of the first commentaries I ever read, and I appreciated how much Dr. Kaiser kept bringing that out. The book is not against pleasure. It's not against money. It's remembering where pleasure is found and that only God can give the gift of enjoying what you do have. And you see this, for example, in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. This is what I have observed to be good. And it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. There's our phrase again. During the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, here's, here, here's the key, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions, whatever the amount, okay, we all have a different net worth in here today, that's not the point. When God gives someone wealth and possessions and, what's the next phrase? The ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. This is a gift of God. Of God. So the ability to enjoy even what we have, be it a small amount or a large amount, the amount doesn't matter. Only God gives or withholds the ability to even enjoy what we do have. And Solomon's point is if I start chasing the wrong thing, one of the reasons that it works against me finally and I start disintegrating is God just pulls his blessing away. And he doesn't let us enjoy anymore. And he starts actually, those possessions, instead of bringing pleasure, start bringing misery and personal disintegration. A second reminder, a second lesson. So number one, remember the ability to enjoy possessions only is a gift from God. Secondly, remember a day of judgment is coming. Some people have read Ecclesiastes and said, this guy's a total skeptic, doesn't believe in an afterlife. Well, that's not true. There's a number of indications in here, strong indications, and even teachings and declarations. 
He did believe in an afterlife. Very clearly, we'll see that especially at the end here. But chapter 11, verse 9, he reminds us there's a day of judgment coming. There's a judgment day. I've quoted uh, Martin Luther before, and I love his quote. He said, I only have two days on my calendar, today and that day. That day. We would all do well. Young people, I know it seems like you'll never die. You're invincible. Well, number one, it ain't true. And number two, you like us, like anybody else, will face a day of judgment. And whether we're taken in the second coming and it comes in our lifetime or whether the second coming is still 500 years from now, we all have an appointment with an undertaker if the rapture doesn't occur before our death. And even then, we all have an appointment at the judgment. And there is a day of judgment for every one of us. Chapter 11, verse 9. You who are young, hey, hey, look at there. Be happy while you're young. While your bodies work and things are good, let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. You know, when I uh, used to, you know, when you're young and you have an injury, usually it's something kind of epic, you know, like I got hit in football, I fell off out of a tree or something. Now I just, you know, like you get out of bed and it's like, you're hurt. (laughs) Not so epic anymore, but follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see But know that for all these things, what's it say? God will bring you into judgment. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this judgment, every one of us will face judgment. Paul writes in Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. So what's Paul saying? We suppress truth by nature. That's our nature. That when we encounter truth, the more brutal the truth is, I mean, the more, you know, the more transparent it is, the more real it is in our faith, the more we want to suppress it. It means every one of us, young and old alike, we're spin doctors by nature. We're spin doctors. We're masters at it. Some of us more than others. And here's what's so ironic. Most of us know the name Sigmund Freud, the great Austrian psychiatrist. Sigmund Freud had a theory that human beings invented God because they were so afraid of the, of the, of the natural world around them, right? They were afraid of hurricanes and they didn't understand them and lightning and storms and tornadoes and all that, kind of floods and earthquakes. And so we invented a big daddy in the sky to take care of us. Bible says the exact opposite, friends. It says the exact opposite. The Bible says we're so traumatized by God's holiness, we suppress his existence. And we suppress the truth. We don't invent it. We suppress it. Exact opposite of what Freud said. We don't want there to be a holy God. We don't want there to be a day of judgment. It's the last thing we want as sinful human beings. And Solomon reminds us there is a holy God and there is a day of judgment. Third lesson coming from Ecclesiastes. Young people, hear this, because this is directed directly at you. And verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1 says so. I love how many times young people are addressed in Ecclesiastes. Remember to order your priorities early on, because it will catch up to you. 
It doesn't mean you can't have a deathbed conversion at an old age. It doesn't mean you can't turn your life around at an older age. Some do. But the vast majority who come to Christ do so before the age of 20. Before life is caught up and weighed them down. We know that. I've asked audiences before to raise their hands. You know, how many came to Christ before age 10, before age 20, before age 30? Past age 30, you don't see a lot of hands going up. And there's, there's reasons for that, sociologically, psychologically, and spiritually. So one of the reasons, one of the lessons here is remember to order your priorities early on. Chapter 12, verse 1, remember your creator when? In the days of your youth, young people, kids. This is the time to get your priorities in order before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. You know one of the banes of getting older? And one of the sad realities as you talk to older people? Bitterness. Bitterness. Anger. I mean, you can fill in the blank at what it's at. It's at all kinds of stuff. That's not the point. Bitterness tends to creep up on us as we age unless we order our priorities and keep our accounts clean. It's not uncommon to hear people say, well, you know what, when I get older, uh, maybe I'll consider the things of God. and things. But right now, I just want to have fun, whatever that is. Whatever that is. You can save yourself a world of hurt by turning to books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. See, the philosophy of the world is live and learn. It's terrible philosophy. Philosophy of Scripture, learn and live. And there's a world of difference in that world of difference in that. Solomon's point is there's no hope in salvation. There's no hope in enjoying life apart from God. The great British evangelist John Wesley, I found uh, interesting, he preached a series in Ecclesiastes. John Wesley did. And he, after preaching his way through it, he described his experience in his journal. This is interesting. He said, I began... Uh, he started his entry, I guess, right after he started the series. He said, I began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes. Never before had I had such a clear sight of either its meaning or its beauties. So as he got in, which is true for all of us who teach and preach, as you get into something, you start realizing, wow, there's a lot here I never saw. Neither did I imagine that several parts of it were so well fitted together, all tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness outside of God, close quote. John Wesley's own testimony when he started preaching through Ecclesiastes. All right, so remember the ability to enjoy possessions comes from God. Remember there's a day of judgment coming. Remember to order your priorities early on. And lastly, remember to fear and obey God. And for this, you go to the last two verses of the book. Remember to fear and obey God. And if you've heard nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, young people, hear this. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. How could you say it any more clearly? Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. I've actually written these two verses out. And I'm now memorizing them because I like when somewhere in Scripture it will say, here's the, here, like Micah 6, 8, what does God require of you? Good verse to memorize. When, when, you, when you get a verse that says, here's the duty of mankind, 
It's a good verse to memorize. Now, all has been said. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment. There's judgment day again. Including every hidden thing. That's terrifying. Whether it is good or evil. Notice the phrase, fear God. It appears six times in Ecclesiastes. It appears in wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is what part of what we call wisdom literature in the Bible. What does it mean to fear God? Some of us come from a tradition. We don't know what that means. Some of us come out of abusive homes, and that's not a pleasant thought. What does the Bible mean when it talks about fearing God? To fear God is not to cower in panic. That's not what it means. To fear God means to kneel in respect and honor before the king. That's what it means to fear God. Picture going in before a king and kneeling in honor and respect. To fear God is to see him as a good and righteous king who holds power over his kingdom, over life and death, but he's a good, benevolent king. He's powerful. He could snap his fingers and your head could roll, but he's a good king. He's a powerful king. It's not cowering in terror and fear over here in the corner. It's kneeling before a good and wise sovereign king. You listen to Africans when they write theology and preach. They're big on God being king. They get king. We don't get king over here in the West. We're so egalitarian in our pastime is shooting down our leaders and tearing them apart. But if you live in a monarchy, even if you don't like who's in the particular role at the moment, you understand a little more kingship. And kingship. That's what it means to fear God. Jerry Bridges has a book out, weird title for a lot of people, The Joy of Fearing God. He says there was a time when committed Christians were known as a God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor. But somewhere along the way we lost it. Now the idea of fearing God seems like a relic from the past. This is to our detriment. Or Oswald Chambers. I love this one. Oswald Chambers. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. That nails it. All goes back to Solomon's central thesis. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, lasting satisfaction only comes from relationship with the living God. In fact, when it's all said and done, the book of Ecclesiastes points directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of wisdom. Who said in the Gospel of John chapter 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And so it is only in repentance and trusting Christ as Savior that we will find the ultimate satisfaction so that whatever our net worth is or is not, we will know what true, lasting joy is and have eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. That, ladies and gentlemen, young people, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. That's where we're heading for the next couple months. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and we're also going to, I'm going to set up um, what we're going to do here with the Lord's Supper. But let me just close this before I set up the Lord's table. Father, thank you for this journal and that you chose to put this in the Bible, when so many of us avoid stuff like this and think that's just weird. I'll spend my time, Lord, thank you in Psalms or something else. Although Psalms, Father, thank you, are are sometimes very dark too and very transparent and open about David or about another writer's despair in looking for their God. We thank you for putting these kinds of passages, these kinds of chapters, these kinds of books in the Bible because they're real. That's where a lot of us are at. 
And so we ask over this course of this series, you would teach us, challenge us. Father, I pray there would be more who are born-again Christians at the end of this series than we started. And who want to get baptized as followers and identifying with Christ. As a whole, may it strengthen us as a church and give us a zeal to evangelize our children and grandchildren and those around us and be better disciple makers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.